Good morning, everybody. How are we? Are we good? You guys excited to be here? How's your week been? Good? Bad? Show me. Is it good? Like top of the charts? Has it been so-so? Something like, I don't know. Somebody just showed me a finger. I don't know if I agree with that in church. Um, I'll pray for you. Um, anyway, uh, I, I really did see something that looked weird, so I'm really distracted. I think we should pray. I think we're, that's what we're going to pray. We're going to recover this, this moment in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We love you. We honor you, God. You're the reason why we're here. You're the reason why that we even have stories to tell or songs to sing. Father, your word is alive, and it is and the Spirit of God is alive, and it's alive in every believer. And Jesus, you died on the cross so those of us who would repent of our sin could have life, real life, abundant life, to see things as they really are, to live about and bring about the kingdom of God in our day. And Lord, just as AJ said, we are in desperate need of you. We are. We're in desperate need of you. The world is sick and and it's in deep pain. And God, we need you. We need the presence of Almighty God to be relinquished through your believers into this world so that we can truly be the salt and light that you want us to be. So Jesus, we ask that you would help us in this moment. As we get ready to hear this message and as I speak this message and declare the truth of your word, God, let it be true. Let it be real and let it let it find uh, its necessary uh, place in our hearts, God, so that we would do and that we would be the people that you want us to be. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in week four of a series, and many of you know this. Maybe you've been here for all these messages or many of those, or maybe you're just tuning online for the first time. My name's Chad. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm just grateful to be here and grateful to be in the Word. I love the Word of God. Who loves the Word of God? Anybody love the Word of God? Don't you love that it's true, that no matter what goes on in the world around us and everything that you see and experience has been tainted it to some degree with sin, everything in all creation, and yet... When you look at the Word of God, the Word of God is true. Somebody say, it's true. And the Spirit of God is alive. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is alive in you. So let's bring the truth of God's Word and the Spirit of God that's alive in you and it's alive in me. Let's bring these things into fruition so that we can become the people of God that He wants us to be. Are you up for that? I want you to know that this message is a message you probably haven't heard before. You really probably haven't heard this at all. And there's going to be a lot of questions that are brought about by, because of that, that idea that you probably haven't heard a message on this. And you're going to have questions based around where we're going to get to eventually in Micah 6. And you're going to wrestle with some things and those answers are not going to be all, or those questions are not going to be all answered in this session. They're just not. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take all of the, the questions that may spur from this talk and bring those to Jesus. That's what I want you to do. I want you to put those back in, into the Word of God, and I want you to filter them through the Word of God into your, the Word of God into your experience and not your experience into the Word of God. There's a big difference there. From the Word of God into your experience so that we can do what it is that God is wanting us to to do. You're going to see why there's tension in this as we track along. What we've said all along in this in this series and including when we finish up next week is this. Uh, we've we've looked at all of the scripture and it's helped us when some other things that have helped us along the way too, like this quote from Timothy Keller. He says that work is anything to better humanity. 
So this tees up really well where we're going to get into today because we're going to talk about redemptive work. We're going to talk about when somebody has peace with God and they've been pardoned because pardoned from their sin because of what Jesus did for us, that this leads followers of Jesus into redemptive work. Now, I will tell you, the greatest redemptive work that you and I can be a part of is evangelism, sharing our faith. This message is not about evangelism and sharing our faith. However, that is the greatest element of of redemption. I believe that. I, I know that when God sets our heart free, that sets every single person to be a person of redemption and to, to be a person of justice, ultimately, that we're going to get to in a few minutes. I'm just ready to, to preach it, but we need to get into the Word to see what I'm going to preach. So Micah 6, 1 through 8 is where we're going to be. The main passage that we're really going to land on is verse 8. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lump verses 1 through 8 into three different things. Some of you like, like outlines, like I like outlines, but I'm not going to spend equal time on these outlines, and I'm not apologizing for that. I'm just letting you know that I'm not going to. So if you're like, well, good grief, you only spent two minutes on the first part of the outline. I know. I know. I did. And now you know. So let's just be friends. Here we go. Verse 1 says this. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember when Balak, king of Moab, counseled what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? With, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Hmm. What would that have for us today? Micah 6.8 is an interesting verse of Scripture. As a matter of fact, whenever I was in seminary, this was, and I was taking one of my preaching classes, this was the passage that they wanted me to preach first. And I had to develop a message, and it was really weird. This is before COVID, obviously. This is a long time ago. And stare into a video camera and preach a message knowing that people were going to pick it apart. I was kind of nervous. I really wasn't with friends in that day, but I'm with friends today, so I'm not nearly as nervous, and I've got some thousands of hours under my belt of preaching since then. But then and now, I also approach passages like this one with a, with a high level of concern because I believe what God's message for, for our day is, I believe that God's message for our day is, is really, really powerful, especially as the world becomes more at odds with the Christian worldview. 
I think in, in this day and age, it brings about tension, a holy tension, a holy discontent in me because I look at, the, I look at what it says in verse 8, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with my God. And I'm thinking, okay, I have to get this right because God has a place for me, and he has a place for you in this world. Somebody say amen. That's a good place to say it. That he has a place for us. That God has, has put us in the middle of redemptive history at this time. And it was not a mistake. It is not a mistake that we're in this room. And that others who used to be in this room are not in this room anymore. That burdens me. I still, I still grieve the losses that we've all endured in 2020. And yet... I know that God is in that too. Just as I believe the Lord was speaking through Emerson when he said this, the problem of restoring to the world original and eternal beauty is solved by redemption of the soul. The problem of restoring to the world the original and eternal beauty, the same beauty that we talked about and we kind of just mentioned briefly from Genesis 1 and 2, at the preceding messages in this series. The beauty that then was lost at Genesis 3. The beauty that was lost, and just like I had I said, I believe it was last week, that everything that we've seen has been affected by sin. Everything in all of creation. And yet Emerson is on to something beautiful because he's saying the answer to that problem, the answer to bringing about original and eternal beauty is the redemption of the soul. And the redemption of the soul only happens through whom? Jesus Christ. And only Jesus Christ. So as we talk about justice today, as we talk about righteous living today, this isn't some man-made endeavor for us to just go out and try and save the world. We simply can't because the opposition is way too strong. We need the strength of God and we need the power of God to be able to do what it is that he wants us to do. But it starts with redemption of the soul. I've mentioned a couple of times this, this word justice and it's, it's a triggering word in our culture, is it not? Like, what kind of justice? And you're probably on pins and noodles. Some of you maybe are like, where are you going to go with this? Are you going to be the social justice warrior? Is that where you're going? Is my pastor woke? No, but I will let you know that I woke up before my alarm this morning. If that's, I don't think we're talking about the same thing there. But I'm not talking about all that. Actually, I'm talking about something that's more important that may lead you into those areas. But I'm not going to get down in that rabbit hole. Instead, I'm going to look at it from a different vantage point because I believe God is bigger than that. Amen? I believe he is. I'll give you an illustration. I wanted a red rubber ball, but I didn't have a red rubber ball, so I just have a black rubber ball. This is a really interesting thing, and it's interesting when you start talking about justice and what this really means. It says this ball was made in... Guess where? Somebody tell me, just guess. China. Do you guys have a ball like this at home? Like in China. But then, because I don't have like a knowledge of these things, I had to do a little search. I'm like, well, where does rubber come from? Anybody else curious about this? Stay up late at night Googling on your phone? Probably not. But 90% of the world's rubber comes from Indonesia and Thailand. So think about this. In the way that God would, would have us exist as human beings... 
to where if we want to have a black or red rubber ball in our home, it's going to come through China, but first it's going to be birthed out of Indonesia and Thailand. Such a great picture, actually, because for as long as we've been able to actually travel throughout the world, God has made us interdependent on one another. To where if you want a black rubber ball in your home, and I mean, let's be honest, we don't want to deprive children of red and black rubber balls, do we? So if you want one of these in your home, because we don't have rubber here, which means you have to find it from somewhere else. So God has made us in such a way to where we are dependent on one another. That one culture learns how to communicate with another culture. That there would be a collaboration throughout the world. But where's the challenge come in? The challenge comes in when some culture does things different than ours. To where if we want a ball like this, or if we want clothes, because most likely your clothes weren't made in America either. Some part of them were not. So if we want these things, we not only have to be concerned about what's going on right here in our world, but also what's going on across the world. Do we agree? Which means that when we talk about justice, we talk about what God's role is, what our role is, God's people, if we're going to act justly in Micah 6, 8, if we're going to do that, which means we need to not only be concerned about the people across the world, but also we need to be concerned about the process of which we get things from across the world, and also we need to be concerned about the products that are being produced across the world. You see, when we're acting justly, that means we're concerned about all of those things. Now, I realize that some of you and cancel culture has fueled this. Some of you are like, that's exactly the reason why I don't do this. That's why I don't talk to those people. That's why I don't whatever. And I get it, and I'm not trying to tell you who to be and all that. I, just, I want the Bible to inform you. I want the Spirit of God to inform you. But I want us to, to think about this because when the idea of justice is brought out, with it comes an expectation of not just what's going on in your world, but also it should be our concern about what's going on in other parts of the world. Again, the people involved, the process of which things come about, and the product. Whenever I was in college, I remember what class it was. I'm not, I'm not positive, but I think it was a class that I had to take because I was in the aviation business for a while, and they made us take a class that ha- it, was, it was about labor relations. So we had to learn how unions worked and where they came from and all those kinds of things. I know that's everybody's favorite topic now. And so I'm not going to delve here very long because I still want you to listen to what else that God has to say. But what was interesting about, about that class is they talked about this event that happened now 100 years, over 100 years ago, the, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in New York City. Maybe some of you have heard about this. And at the time, there were, there were thousands actually in the textile business in New York City, so it was a cutthroat business. And there were sweatshops galore. And who were working in these sweatshops, specifically in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, were women. That was the, the, the prominent employee there. But it was a sweatshop. There was much injustice there. They weren't, being, they weren't 
um, being taken care of. They were being taken advantage of. There was low pay. that w- They couldn't even sustain them, and there was long hours. It was all built on injustice, and they were just manufacturing textiles in, o- in other, uh, just trying to basically maintain or to have a thriving business at that day and age. They decided that they were going to unionize. So the, so the people who were running, there was two gentlemen, actually not from this country, immigrants to this country, came in and created this factory. As soon as they heard that, that they were going to pick it because of the injustice, the people who owned the business then came and basically paid a bunch of thugs to come in and beat up all the people who were picketing. Who, who could agree that that's bad, that's not right? That is, 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 I think, as we talk about even biblically, that is, that is unjust. But that's not the reason why that's known historically, because during that time frame, that was common. That was common. If, you, if somebody wanted to get ahead in, factory, in a factory, that's, that was just common. So the, the threat of, of unionizing happened. They stopped the union. The union didn't come. And then the, the owners of that, that company decided, okay, we're going to shorten your hours. And we're going to give you more pay. You would think everything's great until it wasn't great. The reason why we know about this event is because it brought about one of the greatest tragedies, really, of any business uh, in the history of our country. At least that's my opinion. Because that factory was set up not like a lot of other sweatshops where it was on the single level and they would have these sweatshops in hidden away neighborhoods. Instead, this one was a little bit different. It was actually in a multi-story building and I believe it was in the eighth, it was actually in the eighth story of the building and a fire broke out. There were only a couple exits out of the building. Many people burned to death. Many people that didn't burn to death, they ended up jumping out of the building to their death. So they didn't want to be burned alive. Well, how could this be so? The owners of that business had locked the doors from the outside so there was no way that they could get out. Now, every one of us, you hear this. If you have any conscience whatsoever, that's it. that puts a pit in your stomach that's just really hard to resolve. We look at this and we say, well, how in the world could this happen? Or maybe you, you think, well, this just that is something that would most likely happen in some third world country, in some sweatshop, in whatever country you want to kind of lob that into. But that happened here. And it could still happen here. You see, as followers of Jesus, if we're going to act justly, that means that we need to be concerned about the people. We also need to be concerned about the process of which things are made and things are done, and also the product that's being produced. God would send us into these areas. And I just want to make this caveat for just a moment before I move on. I'm really excited about the the upcoming generations. I'm excited about the millennial generation. I'm excited about Gen Z. Do you know why? Because they're not all about making money like previous generations were. I'm like really excited about that because they're not so bent into having security as the, as the metric of success in their life. They're not even bent into that. Instead, they would rather make less money and have more significance in their life. And I believe, and I fully believe this, that those generations will be released to do good works and to do justice work around the world. And I think that they're going to be a big part of bringing the redemption story of Jesus throughout the world where our generations missed it where our generations missed it. 
If you've done any study on generations, you know this is to be true. This is the common thread. They're just not all bought into the money. They want to live with a purpose. And if we could send out those generations with the, the greatest purpose is sharing Jesus Christ and doing redemptive work, it would be amazing. So why is it, when we talk about justice, why is it that it seems so difficult? Why is it that some people give up before they, they get the pit in their stomach and they just hope that it goes away? Why is it that, that it just, as many of us feel this, that we don't do something about it? It's because of this. Because when you embrace the role of justice for a cause, expect opposition. Expect opposition. So we feel that pit in the stomach. Man, I, this could never happen here. This could never happen. I mean, this is America, the land of the free, the home of the brave. We have all these rights, and how could this be? This is what happens when there's neglect. This is what happens when, when capitalism is the driver without the other type of justice issues that also should be a part of the gospel message and that are a part of the gospel message. So why is this, this opposition expected? Why does it happen with regularity? It happens because as someone stands up to injustice, it exposes those who have been unjust, but not only that, also the idols that they've been using to justify that injustice. That's the reason why there's such opposition, because not only are you opposing a person and necessarily what a person is doing but also the the idol that that person is leaning on to to justify that action if just one person out of this this listening audience today would embrace this if just one person you could you literally if you would embrace this you could change aspects of the world that you would previously think that would be unthinkable and unimaginable. So we have to do what it is that God wants us to do. And Micah, starting in verse 1, chapter 6, just so you know, Micah is the sixth of the so-called 12 minor prophets. I'll give you a little bit of the, the context of this passage very briefly as I read in Micah 1, 1 and 2, because if you go into many of, of the prophetic books in the Old Testament, or even some, some of the writings in the New Testament, if you read right in chapter 1, it lets you know who the message is for, and also lets you know the time frame that it's been written out of, and that's what we see right here in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns, so the reigns, so the, during the, the kings, uh, these kings were reigning at the time of this prophecy, it's uh, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, O Israel's all, hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. So the, the way that we will outline this is first is the Lord's accusation. It's the Lord's accusation against his people in verse 1 and 2. Of chapter 6. There's an accusation here because the two things that were being addressed in Micah's writing, the two large ideas, is there was a perversion of worship of Almighty God and also there was injustice that was happening. 
under these, the reign of these kings. So the, the two things that Micah is addressing largely to the southern tribes of Israel, some message to the northern tribes, but the, the southern tribes primarily was a perversion of the worship that was due God and also injustice that was happening in the land. So you see the Lord's accusation. Listen to what the Lord says. Here it is. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's... What? What's the next word? Accusation is what my passage says. Or my translation, rather. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is larging a case against Israel. I don't want to unnecessarily step on your toes, but I want you to know this. I believe that this message is so relevant today because we also could have a charge against us. I think the same charge could be against us today. That many church folk are just that, church folk. That they're not people of the gospel outside of these walls or the gatherings that, that we would have as, as Christians. In other words, small groups or Bible studies. I believe that the Lord could bring about the same accusation today with his people. That there are other people outside of these walls. That they have that there's no difference in your life between theirs and someone else's. Because you haven't brought the gospel with you outside of these walls. That you're not a person of justice. You're waiting on somebody else to do it. Or you're waiting to cast a ballot so, so some political pundit or political figure would do it. Instead of embracing your responsibility individually to bring about justice. To be a person of mercy or to walk humbly with your God. So while we look at this message, it seems so ancient because it's thousands of years old. My goodness, it is so fresh. The second way that I would outline this, the first is the Lord's accusation from verses 1 and 2. The next way that I would outline it is the Lord's faithfulness. And now we see just a picture of the things that the Lord had done, the Lord is reminding His people of what He had done for them. We'll fly through this. Verse 3. My people, what have I done to you? Have I burdened you? Answer me. This is what the Lord's saying. I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. This is a mention of, of them on the east side of the Jordan River right before they're getting ready to take the promised land. He's saying, remember when you were in Egypt and you were in despair. And he said, remember when I delivered you into this freedom. Remember that. Remember when I planted you on the east side of the Jordan River, when you're looking on the other side of the Jordan River, and, and I had already sent the spies out in numbers. It tells us that, that Joshua and Caleb went out and they spied the land. Remember, God is saying, remember when I showed you what, the, what was possible. Remember when I showed you that here is the fulfillment of the promise. Remember when I delivered you out of Egypt and now when I delivered you into the promised land. Remember this. This again is the Lord's faithfulness. And Shittim, 
is the camp on the east side of the Jordan River before they had crossed the Jordan River to take the promised land. Again, verse 6, he says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's like, how can I level up to you, God? With all, God, that you've done for me, how you've shown up for me. We see these, these themes working out in the Old Testament. I'm, there's, these aren't going to be on the screen, but I want the Word of God to wash over you. If you're a note taker, you want to write these down perhaps. There's a mention at the beginning of verse 4 that God says, I brought you out of Egypt. In other words, I freed you. In the New Testament, Romans 8, 2, this is what it says about the freedom that Christians experience. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. The freedom that we experience. Again, the latter part of verse 4. Here's another one. The speaking of redemption. That God's saying, I redeemed you. I brought you out of this. I bought you back. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this about Christ being our Redeemer. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. Jesus redeems us from the slavery of sin. Romans 6.18 says this, You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. By the way, Justice and righteousness throughout the scriptures are interlocked. Justice and righteousness throughout the scriptures are interlocked. Jesus redeems from the curse of the law. You could go to Galatians 3.13 and Galatians 4, 4-5 through 5 and bear that truth. Jesus Christ redeems, he redeems us from empty religion, from religious practices that ultimately lead to nothing but confusion and idol-forming and traditionalism and ultimately to despair. 1 Peter 1.18, Galatians 4.3, Colossians 2.20. Those are a few. Verse 5, there's a connection there as well because in verse 5 he says, My people remember when Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. In other words, how the people of God were being advised. And now we can go into the scriptures and I could read to you from John 14, 26 through 28, where it says the Holy Spirit of God is our counselor. That God is still counseling his people. He's still counseling his people. What am I to do? Who am I to be? Are there idols forming in my life? How do I rid my life of these idols? There's a message of deliverance in verse 5. Another connecting scripture. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 18, 2. Verse 5. 
There's a message there of the Lord leading. So I want to share with you very briefly four ways God leads his people. These are borrowed from John Piper. The four ways that God leads his people. The first way is through decree. This is when God sovereignly leads us where he wants us to be. He just decrees where he wants us to be. And it's up to us to humble ourselves and follow what he has for us. The second way that God leads his people is by direction. Teachings and commands from the Bible. There are directions for our life. The conditions vary, of course. This is where you start getting into ethical issues when we start talking about justice. We start talking about walking humbly and how we should extend mercy. But yet God offers direction through teachings and commands from the Bible. The third way is discernment. And this is following God through situations that require great sensitivity. The day and age that we live in requires us to operate with great discernment. Not just individual discernment, but also when you sense the Lord leading you to do something in your life, our responsibility is to take that to our community. Take that to our groups. Take that to people who know us and love us so that God can use them to shape our lives and either either confirm what God has already said or to, to confirm that this is actually not God's path for us. This is the discernment that require great sensitivity. These days require great discernment. And the last... And this is, this is the one that we all want, but this is actually the one that's least common, is declaration. Just God telling us what we should do. I mean, how awesome would it be for God to just say, God, tell me what to do? This just doesn't happen. God wants us to, to learn reliance. He wants us to deepen our relationship with him as he directs the, the affairs of our life. He wants us to deepen our relationship with him so he can direct the affairs of our life. God's into doing the deep work. I'll say it in this way. As a loving father, he wants the best for his kids. And if we're God's kids and we're loved by God, then we just need to trust and obey. So much easier to say than to do. We need the support of one another. We need grace because we're gonna get it wrong. And, and God is... is amazing that he will offer grace when we're trying to do the right thing and even if we fail to do the right thing there his grace meets us and is sufficient in that moment of weakness the fill in the blank on your worship guide today is this peace and pardon from god are evident in practical and redemptive work when you have peace and pardon from God, you've experienced that because you've been freed from your sin. You're no longer shackled and enslaved to your sin. Instead, you're a slave to righteousness. That you've been set free from the, and there's no condemnation for you because you're in Christ. That peace and pardon, it renders itself and they're evident in practical and redemptive work. Redemptive work looks like sharing your faith and also doing acts of justice in an unjust world.
the word call that we use around the church a lot, and we've talked about in this series, that was the word was generated because of what AJ talked about in week one, based out of Genesis 2.15. Also, you can see this in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. The word call refers to the initiation of bringing to people into faith in Christ, and this is the, this is the part that we're lacking, if I'm honest, and in invitation to participate in a redemptive work in the world. So this goes beyond evangelism. So not only is it evangelism, but it also goes beyond evangelism in doing redemptive work. When we see injustice, that we meet that with the Spirit of God leading us and directing us and us doing so in humility. When God created human beings, he created workers. Not passive participants. Not just churchgoers. Not just people who know all the songs. Not just people who consume Christian culture. That you know the latest contemporary Christian artist and you have a shirt with a Bible verse and you've got a slapped on the back of your vehicle. I'll be honest with you, much of that is superficial. Much of that is built off of some system that wants you to buy things. God wants to do a deep work in you so you can do a deep work of justice in the world. That's not superficial. That requires a deep work in our heart. That requires us not to, the, to look through the... Not to look at our our world through a political lens, but to look at it through a gospel lens. Not to look at it as, well, I've done my part, and then we pick and choose who we want to be merciful to. Instead, looking at it through the through the eyes, looking at life through the the, the just all of our life around us with the eyes of Jesus to see, well, how would Jesus meet this need? Which brings us to this, Micah 6.8. I love how centering the beginning of this, this verse is, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? We've all asked this question, haven't we? What does the Lord require of me? It's pretty simple. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly, to love mercy. That love mercy piece has to do with the covenantal relationship with God. That we are in a covenant, not a contractual relationship with God, a covenantal relationship. So to act justly, by the way, in the Old Testament, the central ethical principle and the theme of the Old Testament is justice. The central, the central, I just made up a word, the central ethical principle in the New Testament is love. Which one is relevant? Somebody say both. They're both relevant. We like the love aspect of it. And we've neglected the justice aspect that comes about in the Old Testament. So let's drill down on this for a moment. 
Because justice is central to the ethical idea in the Old Testament, and it's a huge issue that Micah is dealing with because there was all sorts of injustice that was happening within the people of God and outside the people of God at the time. So let's drill down and, and try and kind of define some terms here. When in a socially superior position, stepping in and delivering a weaker and wronger party by punishing the oppressor and creating systems where that doesn't happen again. That's what it means to be people of justice. It means that when in a socially superior position, you step in and deliver the weaker and wronged party by punishing the oppressor and also creating systems where that doesn't happen again. So we not only need to be a part of what happens in ground level to meet the person's need that has just had this injustice against them. We need to love them from where they are. We need to share the love of Jesus where they are. Also, we need to do what's in our power to fix the systems that are creating the injustice in the first place. If not, it will always leave us dissatisfied and honestly, we'll never actually fix that. It'll just leave us exhausted because we're never actually fixing the problem. We're just trying to meet the need after all of the the weaponizing has happened, all the injustice has happened, and we can do all that, and it seems like we're just loving these people, and yet we also need to be about justice on the other end to fix the system that's broken. There's a lot of systems that are broken. Not in third world countries, but even here. So if... We're in a socially superior position. You can determine if you are or not. I have my opinion. That means we need to step in and deliver for someone else and to fix a problem. Even if it's a problem that we did not create. So justice has two main aspects. First, it's the standard of penalties for breaking the law. It's fairly obvious. We have a justice system that is built for that. And also, it's justice as a standard by which the advantages of social life are handed out. Two different ways of looking at justice. So it's a standard by which the advantages of social life are handed out, including material goods, right of participation, opportunities, and liberties. So in one way, it's, punish- it's, it's a punishment It's a justice that's inflicted because somebody's broken the law. And the other way of looking at justice, of which the gospel needs to be involved in both, is this. It's the standard knowing that, that there are some advantages of social life. And seeing to and how they're handed out, including material goods, rights of participation, opportunities, and even the liberties that we have. Well, where does this injustice come in? In a fallen world, justice is never evenly applied. It's never evenly applied. This is the reason why Micah, in Micah 6, is addressing the, these issues and because of the injustice that's happened and the corruption of the worship that's happening. In a fallen world, and that's still the world we live in, it's never evenly applied. 
So Christians need to be about the work of establishing and maintaining justice for every person. No matter where the person is born, no matter what, if they're nobility or if they're poor, no matter what their skin color is, no matter what their socioeconomic status is, no matter where they live, no matter even the choices that they've made individually, all of these things can form a bias in our hearts that keeps us from loving them and acting justly on their behalf. So whether through individual liberty or by governmental law, advancing oneself at the expense of others is viewed as unjust. So whether it's through individual liberty, something that you've just chosen, or whether it's something that the government has mandated, advancing yourself at the expense of someone else is unjust. And gospel people are to be people about acting, acting justly because that is what God wants us to do. Is it uncomfortable? Absolutely. Will we always know what to do? No. Does that mean just because of the first two things that you're off the hook and you get to pick and choose what it is that you want to do? No. We need to be actively involved because those who've had peace and pardon from God need to be involved in practical and redemptive work in the world. How are you doing with that? Have you ever seen that it's your responsibility? Are you just waiting for somebody else to do, do the work? Have you been just relying upon, you just cast your ballot and just, okay, now it's about my individual liberty. Now I get to pick and choose how I want to live my life. I voted. I did my part. Voting's part of it. But what you do individually with your liberty is the other part. We act justly to walk humbly. powerful so he has showed you oh man what is good and what does the Lord require of you what's God wanting you to do what have you been neglecting what area of the world burdens your heart that you think about it you dwell upon it Maybe it's an element of creation care and you're, just, you're really concerned about what's happening in the world and you're worried about if the world is going to be in the same way, if it's even going to be here for your great-grandkids. Step and do something about it. Maybe it's because some oppression about a people group. Step in and do something about it. Maybe you're just so burdened because there are people in the world today who do not have the gospel message. Do something about it. Maybe it's because you have been around a business or organization that is just unjust and it's, they're taking advantage of people. Do something about it. Maybe you just your heart just beats for a certain people group and you just see them as marginalized. Act justly. Do something about it. You see, 
when Jesus, he saw us, not just you and I in some personal way, but when he saw humanity as being fallen and sinful, Jesus didn't just stay in heaven and just wait for everything to turn out okay. What did he do? We celebrate the the incarnation of Jesus when God became man. Why? Because there was injustice that was happening in the world and sin was rampant and the only way to meet that injustice so that we could have true redemption of the soul what Emerson talked about the change from the inside that goes to the outside the only way that that would happen is if Jesus then the God man would come to earth live a sinless life die a sacrificial death taking all of the 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 justice for our sins that we deserved, but he, who was the only just one, took upon our injustice so that we could have the righteousness of God. When we go out and we act justly, we do so out of the righteous relationship that we have with God because we are one with Jesus. Jesus. 